0: Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. Thanks. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11. The word of God speaks to us. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received— so we preach, and so you believed. This is God's word to us.
1: All right. Good morning, guys. Doing okay? Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys today. Um, as Sean mentioned, one of the fun things that I get to do with, uh, with my role is visit some of the other congregations, and uh, I bring greetings to you from our other frontline congregations in Yukon, in Edmund, and in Shawnee, and in downtown. And uh, one of the fun things in this season as I've gotten to do that and bring greetings from the congregations is also give a report of what's happening in some of the congregations so you can just realize that you're a part of of one big family as a part of Frontline, that we are five congregations, one church and five congregations. And what you're doing here in South Oklahoma City, and um, the way that you give generously supports the mission of God, not only here locally in your neighborhood, but also around the metro. Our Shawnee congregation, one of the funnest reports across our congregations that I'm getting to deliver, is in our Shawnee congregation, they have baptized year to date more people this year than all of last year combined. And so that's a big deal that's happening out in Shawnee and uh, I got to tell that congregation just a couple of weeks ago how proud of them that we are. They can oftentimes feel forgotten out so far east uh, of where most of us are here locally, locally in Oklahoma City. Um, but God is doing amazing things among them, and we're really, really proud of them. So one big happy family here at Frontline, and I'm excited to be with you guys today. First Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to that passage that was just read. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me as we go through our time together. But continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians, rounding third, as it were, Uh, it's been a long, year-long study of this book, but we're in chapter 15. Chapter 16 is where it wraps up. So I think we've got the better part of like five or six weeks left, and then we'll be done and then move on to to what's next. I'll leave the suspense in the room as to go, what's that going to be? You'll find out later. So, uh, but 1 Corinthians 15 is where we are today. If you please pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll see how God would shape us by his word. Our Father, we come before your word, and um, we've, you've put songs in our lips today, in our mouths. You've given us songs to sing. You've given us lyrics to rehearse that come around your goodness, that remind us of who you are, remind us of who we are. You've given us prayers to pray, a confession of our sin where we've fallen short. You've given us assurance that you receive us in Jesus. And I'm asking that as we open your word, you would grant us understanding. Maybe the most important part of the service is not so much what we say to you, but what you say to us. And we come before you and your living and active word now as we open the scriptures. And so would you please help us to hear what you have to say? Would you hide us from anything that would be unhelpful from my word, my words? But would you avail us and attune us and make us attentive to your word today? And I offer this prayer in Jesus' name. And we all trust that God will speak to us when we said, amen, amen. Amen. Well, this last week, uh, as Andrew's heading off into vacation, I just got back from vacation with my family. We spent a week up in Colorado Springs. It was an amazing week to get to spend together. And Colorado is one of my all-time favorite places to go uh, I love just getting out to the mountains. It's amazing to me. It's always fascinating to me when I see the mountains. This, this the simple effect of just being in the presence of that kind of beauty, what it does to me. <laughs> what it does. There, there's a way of refreshment and refocus just by simply being in the presence of that kind of majesty and taking it all in. But there's one thing that always surprises me when I go to Colorado. Always one thing that surprises me. I'm taking in all the beauty. But one thing I notice is the people who don't stop to take pictures. The people who don't stop to take in the sight of the mountains. And that's the locals. It's the locals. It's the people who live there all the time. They see it all the time. Maybe they're there, they've moved there because they still love the recreation. They still love the play. They still love the leisure. But because of their familiarity, the things around them all the time things that are truly breathtaking, it's lost its its majesty to the locals. It's lost its majesty. I'm like pulling over to take pictures. They're honking at me for pulling over to take a picture. This is a lot of what happens with you and I with the gospel. With the gospel, we can become like gospel locals. We can become like gospel locals. The core truth and message of our faith, many of us have Heard the gospel many times. We aim to preach the gospel in every sermon, from every text, every single Sunday. And at one time, maybe the gospel message gripped you, and it turned everything in your life upside down, maybe so much so that it's still why you're here today. At one point, maybe just thinking about the love of God, the love of God displayed in the suffering and the victory of Jesus, and laying your life on that brought you a sense of awe and splendor. But over time, we become like gospel locals. We're no longer impressed with the mountains of grace all around us. Like other locals, maybe you can see somebody who's uh, relatively new to the church, and, and they're, uh, they're all excited about the gospel. They're all excited about God's grace. They're all excited about God's love. And you look at them sort of like a local, and you say, Oh, I, re- I remember that. You must be, you must be new here. We can take on this view of the gospel where it's something that you accept at one point in your life, something that wrecks you for a time, but then life happens, but then the world happens, things move on, life gets hard, or you move on to what you see as more important, more sophisticated topics. But over time, the gospel that once enamored you starts to be assumed. It starts to be assumed and it gets lost in the clutter of your life, and at worst, it gets adjusted or it gets edited in order to better suit the palate or the taste or the sensibilities of the world around you. You see, when you think about the Colorado lo- locals, what's interesting about this sort of compare and contrast that I'm trying to make at the top end of our time today, there's no real danger in being a bored Colorado local. There's no real danger in it. I think it's a fair compare and contrast, but there's no real danger. At worst, you simply miss out on the beauty that's right off the back porch of your house. That's probably the worst that being a Colorado local can do. There is, however, a real danger in becoming a gospel local. There's a real danger. The danger isn't just a loss of wonder and awe. The danger is that you no longer take serious the central reality of the universe in a way that shapes your life. It's just sort of an auxiliary. It's sort of an accessory. Oh yeah, I believe in that. You no longer take serious the central reality of the universe in a way that shapes your life, your affections, your allegiances. Paul's gonna warn us in our passage today about a faith, about a belief in the gospel that he calls a belief in vain. He says, unless you believed in vain, unless you believed in name only, unless you believe in word only, unless you only believe in a way that you say, yeah, I believe in that, a belief that's plastic and detached from the real stuff of life. That's the danger of becoming a gospel local. And so today as we open chapter 15 in our study of 1 Corinthians, from the jump, Paul is going to bring us straight into the centrality of the gospel. What is it? What, what is this word that we're so familiar with, but we may not know the definition of proper? What is the gospel? Why does it matter? And what does it have to do with us? And so today, if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you wouldn't identify as a Christian, my hope is that what we talk about today will be real clarifying for you. What, what do Christians believe? What's at the heart? What's at the core of what Christians believe? Why does it matter? My hope, if you're not a Christian, is that you would Bring your questions to what we're talking about today, and maybe even God will surprise you with faith. Maybe what I'd like for you today is that you'd hear this as an invitation. If you're here today and you're a Christian, but you find yourself a bit adrift, you find yourself a bit adrift, maybe wandering into the land of gospel local. My hope today is that you would hear this as a call to return. You see, the edge of Paul's burden, the edge of even my burden, as I'm trying to join the apostle in this text is the resurrection of Jesus. This chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, is the most beautiful, it's the most potent, it's the most sustained treatment of the resurrection that's ever been written. That's ever been written, and I'm not speaking hyperbolic on that. It's certainly the most clear teaching we have on the resurrection and all of Scripture, yet the reason that the apostle is writing this along with the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians is not so much just to give them a beautiful view of the resurrection. He's writing this as a correction the whole book has been a correction Sean a few weeks ago unpacked the way that the Paul just keeps giving right punch after right punch right cross and blow after blow and so in verse 12 he actually tells us that the reason he's writing this is that some of the Corinthians are denying the resurrection he's writing about the resurrection because they've denied the resurrection verse 12 tells us and that's not a small problem that's a massive problem because everything about Christianity hinges on the empty tomb of Jesus. Everything about it hinges. Listen, if the resurrection isn't true, then none of this matters, and your songs were worthless today. If the resurrection isn't true, but if the resurrection is true, as it's proclaimed in the scriptures, as it's been testified, eyes wide open by the church for the last 2,000 years, if it is true, then nothing else matters. If God himself died for sin, rose from the dead, empowered by the Holy Spirit better than he was the first time, then nothing else matters and all of life must orbit around that. And so that's the concern that's driving this passage, this concern about the rejection of the resurrection that drives Paul back to the core of the Christian gospel. So there's four things I want you to see today. And the first is that the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. Jump into verse one with me. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, the one that you received, the one you're standing in, and the one by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to this word I preached to you, unless, unless, there it is, you've believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul enters into his burden for the church by way of reminder. He says, I want to remind you guys of something. And Paul is not about to tell the Corinthians about something that they don't know. Or you, today, if you've been around church, you're not going to hear something that you didn't already know. This is not uh, about innovation. Paul's not interested about innovation when it comes to the truth of Jesus. He wants old school stuff. He wants to serve it straight. He's trying to stir them up by way of reminder. This is not the kind of reminder, though, that you set on your phone about something that you need to do that you're worried you might forget about later. Like, hey Siri, pick up the kids from practice after work. Remind me of that. This is not that kind of reminder. This is not the kind of reminder where your wife says to you, hey, go grab some chips and salsa on your way home from work and don't forget because that's going to go with dinner. This is not that kind of reminder. It's the kind of reminder like a parent gives to their child. It's the kind of reminder we're receiving today like a coach gives to their players, a reminder as a challenge, a reminder as an exhortation. This is a reminder of something that is known but by the behavior of the one who knows it or by what they're saying, they're revealing that they might have forgotten. It's like you hear a parent just say, hey, I think you already know this, but I'm going to risk reminding you. (laughs) Hey, in case you've forgotten, let me remind you. Do you need me to remind you? I hear myself saying this even this last week. Do you need me to remind you how important this is? Paul says we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the good news of Jesus. This is the message he reminds them. This is the one that you received, at least I thought you did. This is the message about Jesus that you're standing in, at least I hope that you are. This is the message that has the power to save you, that is saving you. At least it has the power to do that if you're standing in it, and if you've received it, that warning again, unless you've believed in vain. Unless you didn't really believe it, but you said that you did. And he says something really powerful about this message in verse 3. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. First importance. Now, sit back with me and think about all that Paul has unpacked with this church over 14 chapters to this point. In this point in the book, Paul has talked to them about their foolish divisions over preferred preachers. He's talked to them about sexual ethics and church discipline. He's talked to them about marriage and singleness, issues of personal freedom, how to love one another and interact with a pagan culture. He's talked to them about uses and abuses of spiritual gifts. He's done a ton of really important work and heavy lifting in this book. If you've been with us week over week, you know that it's not been lightweight in any given verse or chapter of this book. He's done really important work, and yet he says this. After all of that work, this is the message of what God has done in Jesus. This is of first importance. You can scrap the rest. you got to get this. you got to get this. And here's the point. It's possible for you in your life. It was possible for the Corinthians to get a lot of things right, but get the gospel wrong, and in the end, get it all wrong. It's possible to get a lot of things right, but get the gospel wrong, and in the end, get it all wrong. I'd remind you of Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. He says, And there is is salvation in no one else, speaking of Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. There's only one way. There's only one gospel. There's only one truth that can anchor and secure a life. Listen, it's possible to get sexual ethics right, but get the gospel wrong. There is salvation in no one else. It's possible to get finances right, but get the gospel wrong. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's possible to get your marriage right, it's possible to get parenting right, it's possible to get politics right, but get the gospel wrong. There is salvation in no one else. It's possible to get the gospel confused with your politics or your opinions about other areas of life and then be persuaded that your opinions about other areas of life or politics is the gospel It's not the gospel. Only the gospel is the gospel, and there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So this leads me to the second point today. The gospel is particular news. It's of first importance, but it's particular news. Paul doesn't leave us hanging on what is this gospel, just use the word, assuming we know what it means. He tells us what it is. We don't get to create our own definition for it. This isn't a moment where we all get to say for ourselves what God means to us. This isn't a moment where we all get to say for ourselves, well, this is who Jesus is to me. God actually did something, and he wants us to know what that something is because that's of first importance. If you're wondering about what Christianity is, what Paul's about to say is the E on the I chart. What Paul's about to say is the gravitational center of the universe. You realize all of history, even though it may not seem so now, all of history is bending to Jesus because of what happens in verses 3 and 4. He starts in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He starts in verse three. We'll break this part piece by piece, that Christ died for our sins. He doesn't just tell us what happened, that someone died, or why it happened for our sins, but he tells us here, really importantly, who accomplished it. He says Christ did. By referring to Jesus as the Christ here, Paul is saying that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament longing. Not only the Old Testament Jewish ache, but the ache of every human heart. Jesus is the fulfillment, and he's the answer. He's the promise. You know the ache. It sounds like this. God, where are you? That is the Jewish question throughout the Old Testament. God, where are you? The world is busted. The world's broken. Where are you? When are you going to deal with the brokenness of the world? When are you going to bring justice to what's unjust? God, when are you going to deal with the world? But hey, when you deal with it, will you please deal mercifully with me? And God's answer to that ache is, I will one day send my Messiah. I will one day send the anointed one, the Christ. And Paul is saying, Jesus is that Christ. It's true. Jesus did come for a judgment on the sins of the world. But what Paul is professing to us here at the beginning of this gospel is that he took that judgment on himself and in our place. You see, Jesus didn't die on the cross as a moral example. You should be like Jesus. You should be like Jesus, but that's not why he died. He didn't die on the cross as the consequence of being a good teacher that ruffled some political feathers among the Jews. That's not why he died. He died for your sin against God. He died for my sin, my rebellion, my high treason against his majesty. For the sins of the whole world. God has come to deal with the world and he will finally deal with the world. But he's offered something in the midst of it that he would deal mercifully with us. Listen to the way that David Pryor says this in his commentary. There is no true proclamation of the gospel which does not explain in New Testament terms the link between human sin and the death of Christ. Indeed, there is no gospel at all unless the death of Christ can be seen to deal with sin once and for all. The second move Paul makes in this gospel is that he was buried that he was buried. This may feel like a flyover line or detail. Hey, why is that in there? Christ died for sins, that he was buried. That seems like a flyover detail until you come across some of the conspiracy theories that still give rise today on what happened to the body of Jesus. Like Muslims would say, he didn't really die on the cross. He only appeared to. He only appeared to. It was more of a spiritual death. Or that some would say, go so far as to get wild and say that his body was eaten by wild animals. Or that some would say that the the disciples stole the body of Jesus. People, you see, people don't have a problem. People don't have a problem with the death of Jesus, so far as it goes, because everyone dies. People don't have to deal with even why Jesus died according to the scriptures for sin, so long as you can not, so long as you can deal with the fact that he's dead. But what Paul is saying is crucial, that this is crucial. His burial is crucial. That there was a real body, a real death that was all the way dead. He was embalmed and he was buried in a tomb. Listen to what scholar Gordon Fee says about this. The line that he was buried functions to verify the reality of the death. In the present context, it emphasizes the fact that a dead corpse was laid in a grave Why? So that the resurrection that follows will be recognized as an objective reality, not merely a spiritual phenomenon. That he was buried is a critical line to the point to the last, that he was raised from the dead on the third day. This is the hinge point of the whole thing. The only reason that you are a Christian today, if you are one, is because of the resurrection. The only reason that there is such a thing as Christianity today is because of the empty tomb. The empty tomb is the only hope that sins can really be forgiven. If the cross is God writing a check for your sin, the resurrection is the evidence that the check cleared. He broke the bars of sin and death. It's the only hope that we have, the resurrection, that evil will not ultimately prevail in the world. It's the only hope that we have that death will not get the last word. You realize the only reason we talk about the cross of Jesus is because there's a resurrection of Jesus. If it was only a cross, we wouldn't even remember that Jesus would. He would just be one of many people who was crucified by Rome. We remember the cross of Jesus because it didn't end at the cross of Jesus. There's the resurrection of Jesus. C.S. Lewis says it this way, To preach Christianity meant primarily to preach the resurrection. The resurrection is the central theme in every Christian sermon reported in the book of Acts. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or the good news which Christians brought. And so Paul says two times in this passage, but this was all in accordance with the scriptures. This was all according to plan. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. He's saying this shouldn't have caught anybody by surprise. This was written down for us according to plan. The death of Jesus for sin. The burial of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the good news. If you take out any one part of that, you no longer have the gospel. Good Friday and Easter must always go together. And so Paul says to the Corinthians and to us, This is what I preach to you, and this is of central and first importance. This is what the church is built on, this is what you're standing in, and this is what is saving you. The gospel, please hear this, is not advice. The gospel's not advice, it's not a command. It's not a suggestion. The gospel is a proclamation. Christ has died for sins. He was buried and God himself in his son rose from the dead. That's a proclamation. That's an announcement of something that has been done. Something that God has done for sinners. The gospel, and I must say this really clearly in Bible Belt, Oklahoma, whatever's left of it. The gospel is not something that you do for God. The gospel is not something that you must attain to or reach to or do. The gospel is an announcement of what has been done. God has done for you. And this is what it makes this especially good news. What God requires of sinners, righteousness, he has provided in his son through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The third thing I want you to see is the gospel is historical. It's historical. The church in Corinth, remember, was starting to deny the resurrection. They wanted the way of Jesus. They didn't have a problem with the death of Jesus. But they just couldn't make sense of the miraculous. Who gets up from the grave? Like, does anyone get out from the dead? They couldn't make sense of the resurrection. But Paul says, in case you think I'm making this up, this whole resurrection bit, or the rest of the entire body of Christians across the Roman Empire are making this up, pick up in verse 5. He says You remember that he also appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. New Testament phrase for death. And then he also appeared to James, and then to the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, as one who had no business in him appearing to me, Paul says, he appeared to me. And his point here, this is a really quick pass before our last move this morning, His point in giving this quick roll call here was that if you think that I'm making this whole resurrection thing up, if you think that you can have the philosophy of Jesus without the miraculous resurrection, then you can go talk to people who are actually still alive who encountered the resurrected Jesus. I'm not making this up. You could like, I'm giving you their names. I'm giving you a roll call. You know who they are. Many of them are still alive. Go next door. He's saying he's not a ghost. He's not a dream. Jesus is a physical, resurrected reality, and this is what made the Roman Empire so nervous. (laughs) This is why Caesar knew his time was short. You can't trump a resurrected king. And this is what makes people still nervous today. Here's what I mean. Because as soon as you come to terms with the resurrection, you have to come to terms with Jesus. This is, what, this is why they're, 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 uh, one author calls, especially, especially the South in the U.S., that calls it the Christ-haunted South. Because as soon as you come to terms with the resurrection, there is a resurrection gnawing at the conscience. What if it's true? And as soon as you come to terms with the resurrection, you have to come to terms with Jesus. This is what made the Roman Empire so nervous, This is what makes still so many nervous today. And this leads to the final move today. The gospel changes you. It's of first importance. It's of first importance. It's particular news. It's historical, and it changes you. The gospel of Jesus is not just something you can affirm intellectually. It's something you take into your whole life. Verse 9, notice what Paul says. For I'm the least of all the apostles... I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. He's like accounting this to the, to the church. And he says, listen, guys, I'm the, I'm the last one that should be talking about this, but there's a grace that's coming forward in this gospel. He says, because you remember, I persecuted the church. You may not remember Paul's story. Maybe you're new to the Bible. If you don't know the story of Paul's conversion, the guy who's writing this letter, you can go back and find it in Acts 7-9. to 9. But in short, before Paul was Paul, he was a guy named Saul, The resurrected Jesus encountering him changed everything about him, even his name. He was a man so jealous and so zealous after the traditions of the Jewish people that he saw the message of a resurrected Messiah as blasphemous, as blasphemous. He couldn't fathom the idea of a Messiah dying. The Messiah is supposed to live forever. They're supposed to redeem Israel. How could they die? Much less die for the sins of the world. So if that was far-fetched for him, then you can imagine that a resurrection was insanity to him. He thought the righteous thing for him to do would be to persecute and kill off everyone who could believe or proclaim of a resurrection in Jesus. And so can you imagine the irony for Paul? The day that he was on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9 tells us, to kill Christians. He's, like, he's got special orders from the Jewish elite to go murder Christians. Can you imagine the irony for him when the resurrected Jesus shows up and confronts him? The resurrected Messiah appears to Saul. He's resurrected because he had previously died for sin. He's now victorious over sin and death. The message that Paul hated now stood before him in living color with an offer of mercy. Can you imagine the irony? This encounter, guys, it changed everything for him. It changed his life. It changed his loyalties. It changed how he saw himself and other people. It changed the things he loved. It changed the, th- the way he thought about his past. It changed the way he saw his present. It changed the way he thought about his future. And I truly believe that the reason Paul gives us verse 9 here in this passage is to tell us that if the power of the gospel can reach a Christian killer like me, then this gospel can reach and change anybody. There's an offer of grace in this gospel. Notice what he says in verse 10. (laughs) But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I have no business with the grace of God, but somehow he's given it to me. That is the Christian testimony of everyone who's a Christian in the room. But by the grace of God, somehow (laughs) I am what I am. And I love this last phrase here. This last phrase has gripped me all week. And his grace to me was not in vain. Remember, he, he warns us about a belief that's in vain. He says, but God's grace isn't that way. God's grace is not in vain. His grace isn't fake or sentimental. His grace isn't detached from the brokenness of my life. His grace is real. His grace is eyes wide open to the darkness of my life, and it's precisely in my darkness where his grace meets me. His grace is not in vain. This is Paul saying, I'm standing on this gospel that he died, that he was buried, that he raised. The very thing that Paul tells us to do back in verse 2, stand on this. Stand on this. He's saying, I'm letting every bit of Jesus deal with every bit of me. Stand on this. My question for you as we close today, is this the gospel that you've received? Is this the gospel that you've received? Is this the gospel that's changing you? Because it has to. You can't encounter a resurrected king and remain the same. Are you standing on this gospel? Another way of saying that is, are you building your life on this gospel? Are you? You see, it's easy enough just to say yes to those questions. But let me ask a probing one here. Let me drop this one layer deep. Where in your life have you become like a gospel local? All of us have these places, me too. Where have you become like a gospel local and you only have a belief that's in vain? Let me, let me just tease that out. Give me three more minutes. Where in your life do you have a belief that only says, hey, hey, the resurrection is everything to me, but if I could just gain those people's approval. The resurrection is everything for me, but if I could just have control of that situation. The resurrection is everything for me, but if I could just have a standard, a higher standard of living, well, well, then I'd finally be okay. I'm not saying a belief in the resurrection or standing on the gospel makes all of your other desires go away, but I am saying that a belief in the gospel and standing on the resurrection of Jesus makes you okay even when you have nothing else. You see, for those who stand on the gospel of Jesus, The truth of the resurrection must be pressed into every corner of your life. To stand on the gospel of Jesus means the resurrection must be pressed into every corner of your life. The resurrection means your sins are forgiven and you have the approval of God the Father. Don't be a local and bypass that. Let that be pressed into your marriage. Let that be pressed into your parenting. Let that be pressed into your cubicle tomorrow morning. Your sins are forgiven, and you have the approval of God your Father. Live from that. The resurrection means you can trust the control of God in every situation of your life. It's easier said than done, but the resurrection means it. Even through suffering, consider Exhibit A, Jesus. He will not abandon you. He will not abandon you. The resurrection means there is no future scenario out there where God won't be enough for you, and you'll need to provide for yourself. Hallelujah. The resurrection finally means you are free to surrender to the care of your Heavenly Father, And that changes everything. That changes everything. And Paul says, this is of first importance. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I'm going to (laughs) ask. I'm going to ask with a lot of confidence in Jesus' name. I just feel provoked, Holy Spirit, to ask you, would you please do in this room right now exactly what we just said? Would you please press the resurrection into every corner of our life? Holy Spirit, would you be free in this room even now to shine a light on the corners of our life where we're hypocrites? Would you shine a light into the corners of our life where we... Say we believe the resurrection, but we live as though we're living for something else? Would you please, please press the power and the truth of the resurrection into every corner of our life? Father, would you save us from getting other things in our life right, but your gospel wrong? Would you help us to be anchored in this gospel and then let everything else spill out from there? The implications of this gospel touch our sexuality, they touch our marriage, they touch our parenting, they touch our work, they touch our friendships, they touch our thinking, they touch our commute to work and to anywhere else. God, would you help us to get this gospel right and let our whole lives spill out from there? Press it on us, Holy Spirit. That Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead, all in accordance with the scriptures. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to this table as a reminder of what God has done. This table and this bread and this cup is a proclamation, it's not a suggestion, (laughs) it's not advice. This is an announcement not of what you do, but of what God has done. On the night before Jesus was betrayed and eventually taken to a false trial, he ate with his disciples. He says, guys, this this bread is my body. It's going to be broken for you. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The first move of the gospel. He took the cup and he raised it. He says, this is my blood, that's poured out for you in the new covenant. I always want to remind you, the new covenant is the Old Testament promise that God will be our God and he will be our people. This is the blood of the covenant, that that's true. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. This blood secures that promise. Jesus says, take and drink. I'm yours. You're mine. If you're a baptized follower the Lord Jesus. You're welcome to come to these tables and receive fresh grace. Fresh grace for the journey. By the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul says. I have no business with the grace of God. But somehow, he's given it to me. And his grace is not in vain. Follower of Jesus, come to these tables and receive. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. I pray that what you've heard today is invitation. We'd love to talk with you after our service about anything you have as a question about what it is to become a Christian or what Christians believe. But I'd ask that you abstain from this meal because what we're saying at this table is that Jesus of Scripture is my Lord. And if that's not yet true for you, the invitation would be come to Jesus before you eat with Jesus. So Christians, as you're ready, please come and receive.